So this discussion on enterprise systems, which parallels some reading that you will do shortly in your, your textbook, we're going to talk about really a, a pretty significant set of foundational concepts. We're going to talk about the architecture of ERP systems and how it has evolved over time. And in particular, I want to highlight the newest development in the evolution of ERP systems. We'll talk a little bit about the core modules that compose SAP ERP and why that's important to us and how it's relevant. We will talk a little bit about SAP Business Suite, SAP NetWeaver, and HANA. Uh, we'll start looking at classes of data in ERP systems, and then uh, at the end we'll look at uh, information handling from the perspective of transactional data versus analytic data. So we've got a lot of things packed into this discussion. To get us started here, this diagram is one that is an official SAP diagram, and so I, I like to use it for that reason. It is somewhat incomplete, and so we will add some things to this particular diagram. But what this is, is an attempt to show how over time, the architecture of SAP ERP has evolved through different eras. And what's ironic is the title of the slide is ERP Architecture Through Three Eras. And I would suggest to you that before we're done leaving this slide, we, we probably um, will be thinking of this in terms of, of perhaps there being four eras. And so uh, let's kind of talk through this and see what this tells us. You'll notice that on this particular slide, the, the very first product that there is a reference to is, is R2. Well, if uh, depending upon the courses that you have taken prior to this, some of you might already be familiar with this, but I'm sure for all of you it's been a little while since you've thought of it. The very first product that SAP brought to market, they called R. And so I'm adding it as a box here in the far left corner of our slide here. And, and R debuted in the 1970s. So we're going back 40 plus years in the history of computing to the debut of, of that particular software product. Now, the reason why they elected to call it R, does anyone remember a previous discussion as to why they picked that particular letter? It was related to what they saw as the key functionality of that system, which is their vision of creating real-time information exchange throughout an organization. And in particular, there were three things that the founders of SAP, and it was a, a team of computer scientists that actually were working for IBM and then elected to leave IBM and start working for uh, themselves, and they founded this company called SAP. And there were three things in particular that they thought were important. They wanted to create a software package that would allow a business to use one software package to execute 
an entire set of business processes from end to end, which is still the core functionality of an ERP system. But it's important to realize that back in 1970s, when they were thinking along these lines, that was not something that was commonly available. If we go back to the 1970s, this is the era of computer programs being written on punch cards. And very few people in an organization ever, ever touching a computer. And so the founders of SAP, really quite visionary at the time, said, we see in the very near future workers being able to interact with a computer actually using um, a computer monitor and it being an interactive experience. Up till that time, the only way people ever interacted with a computer was by way of being handed a printout from the computer. And then they would look at that information and uh, there obviously was no opportunity to have a dialogue with the computer or, or change what you were handed other than pulling out a pen or something of that sort. So their vision was that people would interact with a computer using a monitor that the system would be able to support the entire execution of business processes from end to end and it support this idea of real-time information exchange. And once again, ERP SIM is a great example of this where as soon as a sale happens, we know about it and we have that information and the warehouse can immediately begin the process of preparing the shipment to go out because the information exchange is instantaneous throughout the organization. So that's why they elected to call their product simply R, emphasizing the real-time nature of the product. Now when it came time for them to come out with their next version, they decided to call it R2. And at that point now they realized that uh, R might be a, a poor name and so you'll typically see this referred to as, as R1. At the time it was called R, but then when R2 came out they kind of retro named this to be R1. R1 never really made it out of Germany which is where SAP was founded. There were a number of German companies that adopted the software. SAP literally was one of those companies that was founded in a garage and then it grew into a real business. At the time the company was founded, they did not have enough money to buy a computer. And so they found companies in the area that had computers that weren't being used at night. And so what they would do is one of the, one of the uh, founders of SAP had a garage and during the day they would all work in his garage writing their code and then at night they would go to this other company and work all night putting their code into the computer and, and working on their project. It wasn't until they had several companies that had purchased their software that they were actually able to buy a computer of their own and then eventually move into an office building and so on. It was slow going in the early days of the company, but the company really was always successful and always profitable. A lot of businesses did not necessarily see their vision in the 1970s, but enough companies understood what they were trying to accomplish that they were able to sign up many um, companies throughout the country of Germany. 
as we move into the era of, of R2, this is still going to be the very late 1970s and into the 1980s. And R2 is really the first product that made it out of Germany. And SAP became, at that point, an international company. Here in the United States, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to trace the genesis of SAP uh, software coming to the United States. One of the companies that was very interested in this product was an American manufacturing company that needed some help in their manufacturing processes because of the great diversity of products that they made. And, and the company that I'm talking about is John Deere. John Deere was very, very interested in the ability of SAP to help them. And so they were one of the first American companies to purchase the software and are still using it to this day. The era of R2 also saw in the United States some industries move to SAP rather significantly. And it's, it's kind of interesting that what tended to happen is an industry leader would adopt the product and then all of the other companies in that industry would see what they were doing and, and would follow them. And the industry that really brought SAP to the United States is the chemical industry. And so the real irony about that for us, located here in the Tri-Cities area as we are, one of the first American companies to purchase and use SAP was Eastman Chemical. And in fact, I've talked to some of the professionals that are still working out at Eastman that were part of the initial discussion as to whether or not to purchase this software and were part of the team that implemented SAP R2. And so uh, going back into the 1980s is when this product first came to the United States. Now there were some interesting things about the architecture of this product. This was during the era of the mainframe computer, which essentially means that there was a large, fairly powerful computer that the software was installed on and everything was installed on that one computer and all the users had dumb terminals that they used to interact with the system but there was no uh, requirement for the user to have a PC or anything else of that sort. So because all of the software in its entirety was installed on this one computer, a company would just have one large mainframe computer and then they would have other uh, terminals hooked up to it, perhaps throughout the factory or throughout different parts of the organization for people to interact with the software. There was real concern during this era, and I just learned this earlier this week by reading through uh, some company history documents that were provided to me. There was a significant concern at, at the, in the chemical industry, in particular Dow Chemical and Eastman Chemical were concerned that they might have too much information for it all to fit on a single mainframe computer. And they were very concerned that they might outgrow the ability for the software to actually work. 
And so it's kind of interesting. You did not necessarily see these kinds of things going on. But Dow and Eastman jointly formed a group where each of them contributed some employees to try and figure out a way to hook multiple mainframe computers together in the event that the software needed to span across multiple machines. Once again, something that was not being done at the time, but something those companies thought needed to be invented to have this actually be able to work. The irony of it is they never had to actually execute that plan. They never had any problem with it running on a single mainframe. So they actually developed some technologies that they patented and never actually used in their organizations related to ways of hooking mainframe computers together. It is during the era of R2 with this particular software release that SAP brought to the public space the programming language ABOP. And many of you have written ABOP programs and of course we teach here at ETSU in enterprise programming. Some of you may do that in the future. ABOP is considered and, and was developed to be what is called a fourth generation programming language. Meaning that they thought it would be so easy to write programs in ABOP that users could pick it up without really much in the way of training. Um, I suspect those of you that have taken an ABOP class would dispute that. It's not really something that in a matter of 20 minutes you can master it. But SAP, being based in Germany as they were, at one point really made an effort to try and convince all of the German educational institutions, like elementary schools and high school, to teach ABOP to the students so that they would all be fluent in computer programming with the ABOP programming language and that never actually happened. But they made that effort back in the, in the 1980s. So in the grand scheme of things, in the 80s there are a number of companies around the world that are buying and using SAP software to accomplish the running of their of their business processes. We move into the 1990s and a number of very interesting things happens in the 1990s. The 1990s is when really uh, the internet comes into common use. The World Wide Web is not with us at the beginning of the 1990s, but by the mid-1990s, the World Wide Web will be here. And in the early 1990s, companies were putting their organizations on this new network that was available called the Internet. And it became very evident to anyone working at the time that this was something that could really revolutionize the way software was developed and, and the functionality that software provided. And so R3 represented a time when SAP went back to their product and essentially rewrote it. I mentioned that during the era of R1, R1 and R2 ran on a mainframe. So it was what we call a, a monolithic software product. And by that I mean it was, it was one piece of software. You installed it on one machine and then everyone else just accessed it remotely. Well, R3 
was broken up into a multi-tiered architecture. And specifically, it was a, a three-tiered architecture. And in fact, SAP is one of the companies that pioneered the three-tiered architecture that is, is still very much used in, in computer software. I'm going to come back to this slide, but, but let's go to the next one here for a moment to explain the premise behind the three-tiered architecture. If we start um, at the bottom here, there are three different tiers illustrated by the, the different uh, rectangular regions here that compose the way the software is actually architected. There is a database server that exists at the heart of the system. And the database server, if we're talking about R2, or excuse me, R3 and, and later versions of it, could really be any database server a company might want to run. So this could, whoops, don't know how we wound up there. This could be, um, let's see if I can do this without, okay, this could be uh, an Oracle database. This could be IBM database. Um, any of the major database vendors, if the database system was capable of the performance demands and was capable of SQL, which is pretty universal, then a company would run, let's say, for example, an Oracle database system. And then the application server is where the SAP software is, is actually installed. So what you would have is you would buy a computer and you would install, let's say, IBM DB2 on it. And then you would buy another computer and install the SAP R3 software on it and, and you would hook these computers together. And essentially what would happen is the application server would take ownership of the database server for the sake of storing information. And in fact, in your lab exercises, where you have gone in and, and put various information in different places in the system, you're actually putting data into various tables that are stored on a database server. Because this is where all of the data storage actually happens. So you have one computer that's the database server, you have another computer that's the application server, and then all of your individual users have software on their machines as well. And this is where, in our experience, for example, this is where the SAP GUI is that you installed on your machine if you elected to do that. So you install software on the SAP GUI, the SAP GUI on your machine, and it connects to the application server, and then the application server connects to the database server. So you never connect directly to the database server. The database server communicates with the application server. The application server sits in the middle and connects to both of the entities and provides the information. This is a three-tiered architecture. And what it does is it gives us the ability to actually break up the the software so that it's not just all in one big piece. We're breaking the software up into three pieces. It enables us to have more powerful clients. 
and enables us to leverage a database server that is running a product other than something that is created and maintained by SAP and it allows us to have an application server and this application server is where the actual ERP logic and the ERP functionality is embedded. Now as you see uh, hinted at in or illustrated by this diagram a company that is large enough can actually have multiple application servers and so depending upon how many users we have to support we can have multiple application servers that tend to interact with just one database server to fulfill requests coming to it by by different clients. And the clients, by the way, can be things other than the SAP GUI. That's the most typical way, but we could be providing things to uh, users by way of web pages. We could be providing things to users by way of mobile apps or a wide variety of other kind of client software that might be written. But as long as the client is written in a way that it knows how to connect to the application server, then we can support it in this overall three-tiered architecture. It's yes, sir. Like a, it's like a There's a hierarchy absolutely to this. Yes, absolutely. Because as I indicated a moment ago, the client never connects directly to the database server. The database server never connects directly to the client. You're doing a lot of information passing back and forth. And, and what that does is that allows us to say, you know, if the client tries to do something that we don't want to happen, then the application server will block that and our data will still be protected here on the database server. So that gives us a way of implementing a way to manage our infrastructure and to scale this up to support a lot of different users. So going back to uh, this previous slide here, SAP R3 was the product that debuted the three-tiered architecture. And a lot of people, it's very easy to remember R3 being the three-tiered architecture, and I've heard a lot of people over the years make statements that would indicate that it was called R3 because it was the three-tiered architecture. And if they think that, that's fine, um, but I think it's called R3 because three comes after two, and it's just kind of a happy coincidence that it worked out that way. But nonetheless, R3 is what gave us the three-tiered architecture, and we moved away from the mainframe structure to the client-server structure. And so when we're talking client-server, the client connects to the application server, the application server connects to the database server, and we have this mechanism for information passing back and forth that defines this. So we move from mainframe to client-server, we move from monolithic to a multi-tiered architecture. Well, and that takes us to the 1990s. We get to the late 1990s and into the 2000s, and we're now ready for the next big step in this evolution, and that is the move towards web services. Now, web services still result in us using a three-tiered architecture, 
but we change the way the functionality of the system is, is actually put together. And what we do is we break our functionality up. And for some of you, you may understand the concepts of web services already, but let me try and explain this in a way for those of you that might, be might better relate to this. What we do if we're going with a web services architecture is we look at all the different things that our software can do. And we break those up into individual bundles of functionality, which I am illustrating here by, by way of these, these circles. So for example, if you think about the functionality that an ERP system can perform, we can look up a customer information. We can post debits and credits to an account in our general ledger. We can print a report that shows all of the items that we shipped today. And if we tried to make an exhaustive list of all of the functionality pieces, we'd clearly be looking at tens of thousands, if not even larger numbers of things that the software could do. Well, in this idea of web services, what we do is we change the way we think about software and we think about it in terms of these bundles of functionality. And we architect these bundles in such a way that you can interact with them in a new mechanism. And I'll move up here now. And well, actually, I'll move over here to get more space. So I'll stick with my circle. Here's our web service. And our web service is look up customer. And the whole idea behind a web service is that someone can send a message to this service that says, basically, I want you to look up a customer and the customer I want you to look up is Acme. And this web service will receive that message and then send back a reply with all of the information about Acme. And so the whole idea behind web services is simply the idea that we break our product up so that we think of it in terms of all of these individual pieces of functionality and we craft all of those pieces of functionality so that they work based on this idea of message passing. You send it a message, it sends back a reply. And that reply simply might be, yes, I did what you asked me to. Because the message might be, post this amount to this account. And it sends back a message that says, yes, I did that fine. Or your message might have been, tell me the balance of this account, and it sends back a, 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 a packet of information that, that has that functionality built into it. So when SAP moved to this new architecture in the 2000s, they called it the enterprise services architecture. And so once again, they went back into the software and they rewrote the functionality to break all of it up into these web services. And literally, when you bought this product and you installed it on your machine, you got with it all of these, these web services. Now, the great idea behind this is if we have 
a system that consists of all of these web services. That means that in our corporate environment, we could have another computer over here. And this other computer is running software by Microsoft. And we want to hook that computer up to the SAP ERP system for the sake of information exchange. Well, all we have to do is introduce these two machines to one another such that they know how to reach each other and they're authorized to connect to one another. And then the Microsoft machine can send a message to one of these web services and can get a reply back. So it represented a very different way of thinking about functionality. Instead of users sitting down at a keyboard and having to type everything into transactional windows, we could actually do things in the system programmatically and could actually do things by in one system doing something and then sending that information to the SAP ERP system by way of these web services. An example of this be, might be in our company, perhaps the actual software we use in our warehouse is not an SAP software product. So we have purchased that warehouse management software and every time we ship out an order, we key that into the warehouse management software and it updates the information in SAP by sending a message to a web service that says, hey, we just shipped this out so we have fewer widgets and we also just fulfilled this order from this customer. Yes, sir. Absolutely. You literally have, as we were saying, tens of thousands of these web services broken out into just discrete pieces of functionality. So one of the big challenges is finding the web service you need, but once you know the name of the service and what information you have to pass it, you can interact with it uh, programmatically. And I'll show you that in another example as, as we keep going here. Now, what this has enabled companies to do, and I'm, I'm uh, running out of screen real estate to draw pictures on, is it enables companies now to think of programming in a very different way. Because what companies could do is they could employ what is typically called orchestration where when I want to create new functionality, I could say, okay, look, in my system, I have 10,000 web services. I'm gonna take this service, and I'm gonna hook it up with this service, and I'm gonna hook it up with this service right here, and then I'm going to attach this service that actually comes from my Microsoft system, and I'm going to attach this service that comes from our warehouse management system, and voila, I have just created some new functionality for my system just by gluing together these different services. And, and this is called orchestration. And specifically, what I am doing when I glue these different web services together is often called creating a composite application. 
Now, what SAP loves to do is put their own name on things. Do not ask me who came up with this abbreviation. But whereas everybody else in the world tends to call these things that I just described to you composite applications, this is what SAP calls theirs, X apps. Where X, I'm thinking, they're thinking is like cross. You know, like you use it sometimes for a multiplication symbol. They're thinking, okay, we, we put stuff together, we cross up all of these services, and, and now we have an application. So this idea of, of SAP rewrites their software to support web services, and then what that enables us to do is, is put together these things in a, in a different way. Now what I want to do here for just a second, and I know we're doing some moving back and forward here, is, is let's talk a little bit about these web services a little bit more. When we rewrite software to embrace this idea of web services, what we are actually doing is moving to an architecture called service-oriented architecture. And, and once again, if I could just illustrate it by way of pictures, instead of thinking of our software as being that rectangle, we think of our software as being a rectangle that contains hundreds or dozens or thousands or tens of thousands of individual services. And so we architect the entire software towards this idea of being open. And we're architecting it to make it easy for different systems in a company landscape to connect up to one another. One of the reasons why SAP did this is not necessarily out of the goodness of their heart. They did it because there were companies out there that said, we have some key systems that we're running that are Microsoft systems. And we have a warehouse management system that we're already using that we're very happy with. We would like to bring in SAP, but we need to hook all these things together and, and get them to communicate effectively. And this service-oriented architecture gives us a way to do that. And so, as I have been attempting to describe here, in this service-oriented architecture, all of the software's functionality is exposed through these services, which means that internally our application works by using its own services, and then other systems can interact with our functionality based on these services. And all of this happens using technology that at least in part all of you are familiar with, the idea of passing messages back and forth using the HTTP protocol, which is the exact same protocol that's used for the World Wide Web. So when I say we send a message, it's very much like what you do when you type an address into your browser, visit a web page, let's say you're going to buy something from Amazon, and Amazon asks you to type in your address. You type in your address, you hit the submit button, your web browser bundles up that information and sends it off to a computer somewhere out there you don't know where. Well, you have just sent a bundle of information to another computer, and it's going to come back and tell you there's an error with your zip code, 
or you forgot to put in the state, or everything's good. I got it. I saved your address, so we'll ship that to you. So what actually happens here is the information exchange happens over the HTTP, HTTP protocol, same thing that the web is based on, and the actual information itself moves in packets that are XML data. Now we don't need to dig into what an XML document is, but it's similar, at least in concept, to HTML documents in that you have information and then you have tags with it that describe what that information actually is. Let me give you an example of this. There are a lot of web services that are out there that uh, we could freely make use of. And in fact, a lot of the demo services that are out there, oh, this will be interesting to try this with Microsoft Edge. I was not expecting that. Uh, the National Weather Service has a set of web services that can be used for the sake of finding out weather information. And there's a lot of technical information here that, that we will not look at. But the basic idea is I could send the service my location and it could send me back the, the weather report. And let's look at an example of that using a different website here. Uh, this is a website, servicerepository.com. Don't know why I got that message. That um, I'll get this back up here, and then I'm going to have to try and type this, it looks like, for whatever reason. www.service-this is the part of the surface I don't like. There we go, servicerepository.com. Oh, interesting. Well, yesterday this was working just well, but are just great. I wonder if this has something to do with trying to access this on our good friend Microsoft Edge. Do I dare try it in Internet Explorer? Let's try, uh, let's try Firefox. That might be Firefox will probably open slowly since it's not an official Microsoft application. All right, so paste and go. And oh, it looks like it's down for good. So apparently they did not want me to use this as a class example for us today. It looks like they're having a technical issue. But if this worked, what you would have seen was an amazing demonstration where I sent it our zip code and it sent back to us the weather at our location. Now, if you think about that for a moment and think about the potential utility of that, what that means is I could write an app for my iPhone or for my Android device that displayed to the user the weather at any given location 
and all my app would have to know how to do is have to know how to send a request to the National Weather Service and then know how to interpret its response. And in fact, that's the way most of those apps are architected. And they're using this idea of the, the service-oriented architecture. So to go back a, a couple of slides here, and then I want to make sure that, that um, we don't have questions about this. So what we've had here is we went from monolithic software in the 1970s and 1980s to client-server-based software in the 90s, and then now in the 2000s, we have moved to, it's still a three-tiered architecture, but our functionality is partitioned into these web services, allowing us to create these composite applications. Questions about any of this? Now, I'm, I'm electing to do something a little bit different. Rather than continue to talk about the advantages and virtues of, of, of uh, service-oriented architecture, I, I want to use this slide for slightly different purposes, which is to add the next step in our timeline here. So um, if we... If we uh, think about the diagram we were building, we had R1, and then we had R2, and then we had R3. Oh, and by the way, when it came time for them to introduce the web services, that's the same era where they decided to slightly rename their product, and this is when they started calling it SAP ERP. And what they then started doing was taking the, the numbers and making them the version number. So there was SAP ERP version 4, version 5, and, and version 6. And in fact, when you launch the SAP GUI on the little line item of descriptions, you'll notice it'll say something like SAP ERP uh, 6 point, and then there are numbers after that. Version 6 of SAP ERP is the latest version. And then the numbers that are after the decimal point, such as 6.02, 6.03, that signifies what enhancement pack you're running. Those are kind of like mini updates to the system. Companies that had to move from R3 or to R2 to R3 this was a major undertaking for companies. I mean, that move right there could represent six to 12 months of work. The move from R3 to SAP ERP was a little bit more seamless and not as time consuming. So we said this was the era of the 2000s. We are here in 2015. What is now? And we are right on the cusp of the next big thing here. And I would put the time date for this next big thing probably at 2017. And the next big thing here is SAP S4. So they've gone back to the numbers but they have gone from R1, R2, R3, now to S4. So, so what gives? Well, the R, as we established, stood for real-time. Now, real-time is not a big thing. Everybody's doing real-time now. 
What does the S stand for? The S stands for simple. And SAP is now making a significant effort to simplify their overriding architecture. Part of that, what will make this to be possible is a, tech, is a technology that we will talk about in more detail here in just a few seconds, and that is SAP HANA. And SAP HANA revolutionizes, in the context of SAP ERP, their three-tiered architecture. This right here is the big bet that a lot of companies are looking at right now. For a company of size to move to HANA could represent a significant expense. Because HANA, you have two different ways that you can run HANA. And here's the big question that companies are wrestling with right now. One way that you can run HANA is the same way companies have been running all of this software for the past few decades, which is we can run it on premise, which means we buy computers and we put them in our computer rooms and we install the software on it. The hardware demands of this system in order to provide the functionality that SAP wants to have happen is these are going to be very, very, very expensive systems. So I'm going to have to invest a lot of money in hardware along with some of the other technology that we will talk about here. The other alternative represents kind of the next big era that we are seeing in enterprise computing right now, which is I can run this on the cloud, which means that as a company, I don't buy the hardware. I buy the functionality of SAP HANA and S4, and I pay for it on a monthly basis based on a subscription model. So the idea is this, and I'm going to use um, somewhat arbitrary numbers here. If I go with the on-premise, I might have to come up with $2 million up front to buy the hardware and to uh, rework my, my ongoing infrastructure. If I go with the cloud, I have a very, very low upfront cost, but then my monthly fees for this might be, uh, we'll just say $70,000 a month, which would be a pretty good sized company. So which of these am I, am I more comfortable with? And those numbers seem kind of out of whack. This is probably in this scenario would be more like $50,000 a month. If I buy hardware, hardware gets old really, really quickly. So I buy $2 million worth of hardware this year, and, and three years later, I've got to buy more hardware. If I go to the cloud, I'm paying a little bit every month, but then when it's time for new hardware to be needed, the cloud provider is going to provide the hardware for me. So it's changing the whole way that companies buy this <laughs> software, and they think about the way they're going to deploy 
um, it in their, in their infrastructure. Now, I've kind of talked a little bit about HANA here. I mainly did that because I wanted to introduce you guys to S4. S4 is something that SAP is talking about right now. It is brand new. There is not yet a Fortune 500 company that has adopted S4. What SAP is doing is rather unusual. All of their other products, they have said, we are finished with R3. Here it is. Come and get it. What they're doing with R4 is they're saying, um, here we are in um, 2015. And so uh, by December of 2015, we'll have um, all of the accounting stuff ready. And then by May of 2016, we'll have, I think the next module is, is logistics done. And they have like this five-year plan for delivering this in, in pieces over five years. And so what companies can do is they can say, yeah, we want that. And literally, as SAP writes the different modules, you, you get it as a part of your infrastructure. But the entire product is not ready right now. And it will be a few years before the entire product is ready. But a lot of companies are looking at moving to this technology. It totally changes the way the system works. And let me give you one example of that. SAP ERP has a database, as we were talking about a moment ago, that has over 10,000 tables in it. SAP has pledged that S4 will deliver all of the functionality and more in no more than 1,000 database tables. And it's because they're re-engineering the tables and taking advantage of some computing power that we will talk about that, that wasn't possible during any of these, these previous eras. So now we have a much more powerful computer. So S4 is engineered to take full advantage of that power. And so SAP is going back in and simplifying their entire software package to make it more embrace uh, the potential of, of contemporary technology. Okay. Any questions about any of this? We'll talk about HANA more as we go along, but the overall progression and the basic ideas that we've been exploring. And any questions? Question yeah. Okay. That's the idea. Every web service just does one thing. Now, in the case of my uh, weather application, I was talking about my weather service. I might be able to pass that service, the name of a city in text form, a zip code, or even a pair of longitude and latitude coordinates. And it would then take that information in and send me back. And if we, if we could have seen it, what we would have seen is it would say, uh, the current temperature is this, the forecasted high for today is this, the forecasted low is this, the probability of rain. It would give me the basic facts of the weather. No, a, one computer can host potentially millions of these, these web services. They're, no, no, one for the whole company. A, a good example of this would be when you go to Amazon website or any website, um, 
there are, um, from your perspective, you go from web page to web page to web page, and all of them have different information on it. But all that's coming from one computer. The only thing really that's different is as you go from page to page to page, if you look up in the address bar at the top, the address is slightly different. So that would be the idea here. We would have one machine that would have all of these different web services in it, but based on the particular address that we send the message to, that tells us what service is going to respond to that. Just like typing in one URL versus another one gives us slightly different information, even though it might be coming from the same destination computer. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, yeah. Okay. Are you the company or are you a person? Okay, so you, the company has one computer, all right. Okay. It, it somewhat depends, but it is not unusual for a company of moderate to large size to have multiple different software packages that they use. Maybe back in the 1990s, the warehouse bought a piece of software to run the warehouse and it still meets their needs and everybody knows how to use it, so they have that and that's one server that's running that warehouse management system. That's one physical machine running that. And then we buy SAP ERP, so that's another physical machine. And we might have a collection of three or four or more different servers that all, uh, we desire them to all be able to pass information back and forth among themselves and the web services give us a mechanism to be able to do that. Okay? Other questions about any of this? Yes, sir. How does uh, That is the million dollar question, quite literally. Because, um, and for those of you that didn't hear the question, Customer development, remember we talked about the ability for you as a customer to extend the functionality of the software, other things of that sort. Well, if I bring this into an on-premise solution, this is mine. I can do whatever I want to with it. I can do my own enhancements. I can even do my own modification if I want to. I own it, it's totally mine. When I move into the cloud, and by the way, I should back up. Does everybody, at least in some sense, know what I'm talking about when I say moving it to the cloud? All of you have, have kind of experienced it in that the software that you are using to do your homework for this class is on a server that is in Milwaukee. But that has not influenced your ability to do the work because your machine just connects to the machine in Milwaukee and, and you use it. Well, the cloud is we're connecting to a machine somewhere out there in the world that has all of our information in it. And so we interact with it and we make use of it, but we don't actually own the hardware. The hardware is owned and out there and maintained for us by another company. Well, when I move to the cloud, this introduces the concept of shared tenancy which means that depending upon the size of my company, I might get a really good price for this 
under the understanding that my information will be on the same server as two or three other companies' information. And the system will keep all of our information separate. There's no way for company A to see information from company B. But because I am in a shared tenancy environment, one of the customers doesn't have the ability to go in and change the software because that could potentially affect all of the other people. It's kind of like living in an apartment with multiple roommates. And as long as everybody just does what they want to do inside of their own personal uh, bedroom, then that's fine. That doesn't affect the other roommates. But if one of the roommates comes out and decides to you know, paint the living room pink, everybody that lives there is going to have to live with the pink living room. So when we move to cloud and we move to shared tenancy, it reduces our ability to engage in customization. So basically, we have to decide to run a standard configuration. And we have some ability to make changes, but not to the extreme that we have in on-premise. And the reason why I'm having to be somewhat vague about this is, SAP is still trying to figure all of this out and trying to figure out a way to allow these customers over here that are in this cloud-based environment to have the ability to do some customization without disrupting their fellow tenants. And that's hard. That's, that's literally the cutting edge of where we're at right now in cloud computing. And these are issues that companies are wrestling with right now. Um, I did some consulting work this, this summer for a company that this is the big question they're wrestling with right now. And the top executives in IT of that organization are trying to figure out, do we buy the hardware and bring it in? Do we move to the cloud? And they've been wrestling with this for months. And I don't think they're any closer to a decision today than they were three months ago. But at some point, they're going to have to pick a pathway. And there's pros and cons with both of these pathways. And the reason why it's a hard decision to make is there's not a lot of other companies you can look at and say, okay, they did this, and that's working well for them. Yes, it's sir? It's like this. Some businesses have their way, like, like you're doing an example, like on-premise and cloud, because one can work for them and the other one doesn't work for the other. So if we are running a fairly standard configuration. We haven't gone in and made any changes and, and there's nothing of that sort that's really of great concern to us, then this right here would be ideal because we pick up the savings and expense and like you were saying, we, we don't really have to worry too much about it. But if we have done a lot of customization, if we have done any of those things, then that might push us this direction to on-premise. Yes, sir? Huge issue. And here is what SAP has said. SAP has said that what will happen is basically this idea. In quarter one, we have uh, an enhancement. And they foresee doing this on a quarterly basis. So in quarter one, they want to make an update to the system. And so what they're going to do is in quarter one, they will push all of this out to customers in the customer's testing system. And the customer has one quarter to test everything out, 
to make sure it still works and to make any adjustments they think they're going to need. And then in quarter two, those changes go live. And so what you have is you always have a quarter of, of uh, testing and ramp up time, and then the next quarter it goes live. And they're somewhat vague about this, but it seems like what they're saying is if, if you have a testing issue, you can report it back to us and we'll try and make adjustments in the system to solve your problem. But if ultimately it's not working out for you, you can just elect um, not, not to move ahead. But the thing that you're buying when you move to the cloud is SAP, literally SAP, the company, is going to take over managing your infrastructure and they will do all your updates for you. that very likely could be the case. But you're saving money. You know, and this now, this now makes the equation very different. It's like, okay, if I go this route, we could literally be talking about IT costing me millions of dollars more a year. Is this thing that unique that I'm prepared to pay millions of dollars more? Or am I willing to surrender that and go with this other thing over here? And and you will have some flexibility here, but you will not have the same flexibility you would have in an on-premise solution. Yes, sir. Okay, so with, with cloud, like you can't do as many changes and stuff, what's that going to mean for potentially for, people, for companies that have like all bought teams and stuff? Will they still be able to do what they do, or is it going to like take that away from them? Very, very, very good question. Okay, and it's, it's not one that I can give you a definitive answer to. And, and I literally spent this summer hundreds of hours reading about S4 and researching it. And there's a lot of ambiguity out there because this is such a new product. And SAP, make no mistakes, SAP wants to sell this. And they want to sell it by the ton. I mean, this is, this is, SAP has said, we are betting the company on S4 and HANA. And the reason why they're doing that is they think that this, this whole bundle of S4 and HANA represents state-of-the-art best practices in computing. If we move as a company to HANA, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, let, let me uh, talk about the power here. HANA gives me the ability to process millions of customer records in under a second. HANA brings with it a promise that companies have never been able to have before, that some of you uh, accounting people, business people, might, might uh, see the value in more than others. Businesses typically close their financial records. They close their books annually. HANA will give companies the ability to close their records every day, which introduces a whole new way of viewing how we're going to do cost accounting and other things of that sort. It, it really is revolutionary because of, of just how powerful it is. But what that means in terms of ABOP development, if I bring it on premise, I can do all the ABOP stuff I want. If I go with the cloud, one suggested idea is what's called the sidecar strategy.
where here's the SAP HANA system that is the main system. And then alongside of it is another system that has all of your customer specific stuff. And these two systems interact for the sake of you having your own custom written code and so on. This is called the sidecar strategy. It is a viable architecture. Um, but what the trade-offs are is not readily apparent at this point. But ABAP is not going away because HANA and S4 run ABAP. So that will still be there. But what this is going to do, by the way, is once S4 and HANA is fully out there, give it a few years for that to happen. And by the way, companies will still be running SAP ERP a decade from now. I mean, this journey to move to HANA is at minimum a two-year journey for a company. And many of them aren't going to want to start that journey anytime soon. So we're talking about something that if you go to work for a company that's running SAP, in the scope of your career, this will be the next big thing. When this comes out, the SAP GUI will be gone. You know, that whole way of, of drilling down through the menu hierarchy and how painful that is, that will all be gone. And a lot of the work that is done in the context of SAP HANA will be web-based. And in fact, at some point I need to, I'll demo for you guys um, what's called Fiori, which is SAP's HTML5 interface. And you look at it and you'd swear it, it couldn't possibly be an SAP system because it's actually pretty and easy to use. And it runs in a web browser. That's what, that's what this will bring. You know, a lot of people say, you know, uh, SAP, their interface is from the 80s. And, you know, it's because they, they've had all of this baggage from all of this decades. And what SAP is literally doing now is they're saying, we are rewriting our software from the ground up to make it work more mobile friendly, more HTML5 friendly, and more cloud friendly, and all of these things that represent things that are available now that, that were not available in, in the recent past. And in fact, because we're talking about HANA so much, I, I'm going to jump ahead in our slides. And we have, what, uh, like 10 more minutes left. So that's like perfect. Um, I'm going to jump um, many, many slides ahead. So you have the slide that, that we are about to look at. Um, but it's it's for me it's slide 17 for you guys it's probably about slide slide 12 or so this diagram yes sir yes but but kind of like what we were talking about where some companies were concerned about needing to hook more mainframes together i i would seriously doubt companies needing more than one HANA device. They might need a, a many, many powerful HANA device, but um, they probably would not need more than one. And I think we'll, we'll see that here. The whole idea behind HANA is illustrated in this diagram here on the left, which is, you know, what we, what we have is we're changing the architecture of, of ERP to more better embrace not only a company's ability to execute their desired business processes, 
but to do much more with analysis and prediction. And so everything is going to be re-architected such that the system will allow us to process a mammoth amount of information and produce real-time analytics results. And in some of the testing that I've seen, literally like a report that if you wanted to create on a current SAP ERP system would take hours to run, on HANA it will run in, in seconds. And in some case, less than a second. Basically, what they've done is they've, they, they don't ever acknowledge this, but the same kind of technology that Google uses to deliver really fast results is, is what we're talking about here. How, how does Google deliver sub-second time results? Well, they've totally changed their, their computer systems. And one big thing is the computer that HANA is running on, multi-core CPUs. Now, we're used to the idea that when you go out and buy a laptop these days, at the center of that laptop is a processor that has a computing core. And in fact, a contemporary laptop is most likely to have multiple cores, which gives it the ability to do multiple computations in parallel with one another. Well, can we scale that up? Could we have a computer with a motherboard with 50 processors on it. And if we rewrite our software to take advantage of that, can that give us a performance difference? Absolutely so. The other thing that's going to be a change, and this is perhaps the thing that most people can easily relate to with HANA, is most enterprise information system in the current information systems in the current environment store data on hard drives. Hard drives are incredibly slow. If you have ever bought like a new laptop and you went from having a laptop with a hard drive in it to a laptop with a solid state drive in it, you probably have experienced how much faster everything is. Well, there, there's kind of a hierarchy, and I don't have in this slide set here the numbers. Um, but at some point later this semester, I'll, I'll, I'll pull in the actual statistics and we'll look at it. But the numbers are something like this. To read data off of a hard drive, and once again, these are a rough approximation of the numbers. I'll give you the, the actual numbers in the future. It, it takes 10 million milliseconds to read data off of a hard drive. Then we go to read data off of a solid state drive, you know, drops that down to maybe a million milliseconds. To read data out of memory, which means that we don't have a hard drive anymore. We don't have enough solid state drive. We have four terabytes of RAM memory, which we can access in 10 milliseconds. Now tell me how much faster this is going to be going from 10 million to 10. You can't even compare it. Um, Hasso Plotner, who is the former founder of SAP, who conceptualized this, he, he likes to use the analogy of retrieving a glass of water. And he says, to, to compare it in scale, it would be like a hard drive is like if I had a glass of water on Mars and I wanted to get the glass of water, I'd have to fly to Mars, get it, and, and fly back. 
uh, a solid state drive is like saying uh, I, I have a glass of water on the other side of the planet and so I've got to go over to the other side of the planet to get it. RAM memory is like saying I have a glass of water sitting in front of me, how long does it take for me to grab it? It just becomes so much more quicker. Well, if I can grab the information much faster and if I can process it using multiple CPUs, the world has now just changed for me as far as how fast this system can perform. Why do we need this? Because of the demand for true real-time applications. Users want mobile apps. Users want to be able to whip out their iPad or iPhone and pull up a map and see a little pin on the map for all of the customers that that salesperson has in his or her territory. We can't do that with a contemporary ERP system because the app connects to the back end by way of a web service and says, give me the address of all of my customers and 15 seconds later, it gets back the answer. Nobody wants to use an app that every time you push a button, you have to sit there and stare at the screen for 15 seconds. This, HANA, allows sub-second response time. So now you can actually click and virtually instantaneously get the result back. So that's why this big emphasis on re-engineering everything around what contemporary technology will, will in fact uh, allow us to do. There's some other elements that are, that are driving this, but I think we have like two, two, three minutes left here. And just to round out our time together today, let me see if I can get this particular uh, video to play. This, this is an example that when you watch the video, you might think, what does this have to do with SAP? This is a game company that bought HANA and is using it in their games to allow customers to make in-game purchases. And this is...